Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Tuesday night edition of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. Joining me is the author of, in my opinion, maybe five of the 10 best basketball books that I've ever read, including his latest effort, Golden Days, about the late 60s, early 70s Lakers and the most recent Warriors through the eyes of uh, Jerry West as a, a tether to connect those two teams. Jack McCallum, how are you? Nice to be on, Nate. Nice to be here. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to start just, I mean, I, I tore through this book, obviously, when I, I was sent it as an advanced copy. And the biggest thing that stuck out to me uh, was just some of the stuff that people were willing to tell you. I mean, years later, I thought some of the stuff, I, I'm kind of a historical nut, so I found some of the stuff about the Lakers most interesting. Um, the one that, like, I couldn't believe I'd never I can't recall ever hearing anyone say this was Elgin Baylor actually said to you he admitted that he could have worked harder in his career do you ever remember <laughs> anyone else saying that I, I thought that was remarkable no not certainly not certainly not guys who are in the pantheon you know if you reach that point when you're considered the top 20 in any sport uh you, you know you, you usually don't get that you usually hear about how hard I had to get to work here about the only comparison I can think of, and I certainly, well, I actually met the man, but I mean, I wasn't covering it. The only thing I could remember like that was Mickey Mantle. <laughs> you know, Mickey Mantle was always talking about how, you know, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. And obviously, <laughs> every, you know, he had a lot of physical ailments, as did Elgin, by the way. But, uh, you know, I mean, Mickey, there was always allusions to the fact of his drinking and carousing and not doing the things necessary uh, to be a complete player. There's been a lot of players like that. I mean, I think I love him dearly, but I don't think Shaq exactly. I was going to say him too. Yeah. Yeah. Busted his butt in the off season. And I certainly brought it up with Shaq. I mean, it's been talked about. I wasn't the only one, you know, he had certain foot injuries and he probably only played, you know, 80 games a couple times, but he never, but he would never say to you, uh, I didn't work hard enough, but that kind of fits Elgin's personality. If you want to go in and talk about him, but he, it kind of fits sort of how he is this kind of outlier figure in NBA history and somebody maybe who didn't take himself as seriously as he could have. And he sort of remains kind of on the outside uh, looking in, which is considering his greatness, which is definitely where he should not be. Yeah. And that's something I want to talk about more later too, as we go on here, some of the over or the overlooked players that we don't talk about enough these days. And for Elgin though, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't something that he said before. I mean, 
like what were you talking about with him that like he even admitted that i mean I, i'm guessing you probably weren't just like oh hey uh, so you probably didn't work that hard huh well no i didn't do that i wasn't really thinking about it i was weighing kind of i mean my thing from the beginning at the point when i interviewed elgin which was very early in the process i didn't exactly know what i was doing i thought i was doing just a book about 71 72 lakers and i knew that the central character in it would be jerry west simply because he always fascinated me so much and he was still in the game you know he was still he was still relevant um so i was kind of weighing him next to as i recall that was the context of the conversation you know we were talking a lot about jerry as when i talked to jerry he talked a lot about elgin and i i think i was talking about you know jerry's work ethic and you know his uh ritualistic shooting jump shots and never wanting to leave the gym and that kind of work ethic thing and i think that's when elgin kind of commented out of the clear blue sky that he never uh worked as hard as he could uh and it surprised me also it, it certainly wasn't something that i was going to expose elgin baylor's uh work, <laughs> work ethic i think a lot of times you know as, as you know when you when you go out to do a story i think people have the idea you, you know what's going to happen a lot more than than you do they they think that you have the story written they think yeah. that it's very predictable and a lot of times something takes, you know, takes a weird right hand turn in the middle of doing it. And certainly the interview with Elgin did that. The interview I did with Pat Riley kind of really surprised me and takes you off into some different directions. And that's, you know, one of the great things about doing this. Yeah, I thought the Riley interview was really interesting, too, because him, when he looked around, you described him looking around his office and saying, hey, you know, if I don't get claimed off waivers, like maybe this palatial office and all of this career never happens for me and do you think that a lot of players because a lot of players to get to where they are or coaches or whatever they overcome so much to get there and the vast majority of them work extremely hard and do you think that other people have you had them say to you hey you know what like there's this was a lot of this was luck like there's there's moments in my career where if one thing goes differently maybe i'm not you know pat riley or i'm not you know whoever these luminaries of the game well it's funny that during the season that happened a, a couple times and i think it's people with this sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for kind of this emotional intelligence this maturity about themselves because oddly enough this season i heard it twice i mean i've heard it before from greg popovich yeah talking about you know i don't get tim duncan you know, in the lottery i don't know whether all this happens and steve kerr i don't get with the chicago bulls and learn from phil jackson and become a teammate of michael jordan i don't later in my career get with the San Antonio Spurs and learn from Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan, you know, that doesn't happen. I can't tell you what's going to happen. And Pat Riley, though, surprised me more when he started talking about it. And I think Pat, you know, it was very, it wasn't because of me. I just, I was lucky. You get lucky on some interviews. And Pat really wanted to talk. This time was special for him. His relationship, what he felt about Jerry West was very special. And he kind of wanted to make a Ends. I mean, he went on this thing about in the 80s, it was his fault that the Lakers, his relationship kind of broke up. I was the one getting all the offers. I was the one getting all the books. I took myself too seriously. And that totally stunned me when he started talking about that. And 
anybody who's had a lot of success and has been able to stay in the game the way that Ryle has and the way that West has, you're talking about people that have been relevant for 50 years in the game uh, and better understand that uh, a lot of serendipity has happened along the way. And if they don't, they're really not looking at things honestly. What's Pat Riley like as a guide these days? Because he's almost, he'll speak to the media like once or twice a year at this point in regard to his duties with the heat. He's taken on this almost mythical status of just this heat culture and everyone is so businesslike and works so hard. And like, I mean, and you know, there was a time back when, when he was guaranteeing championships for the Lakers, it seems like he doesn't quite do that as much. He's more businesslike, but like, what was he just like to, to be around when you were talking to him? Well, it was, for me, it was a little, uh, not quite as jarring because I had known him and you're right. I mean, he's largely disappeared and there were times when Pat, uh, you know, I remember back in 2005, 2006, when the, when the heat won the title that I was trying to get Pat, you know, I was trying to do a story on on him doing during the finals because by then he had become as you said this kind of mythical figure who existed on this Greek island and we you know he, he came down from the heavens uh, <laughs> once a, once a year to do like a press conference and that's all anybody knew but I knew him from the 80s I mean Pat was very he was never what you'd call you know he wasn't he wasn't pigeonholing you to talk to you but certainly every time I did a Laker story during the Showtime years I talked to Pat he was very candid he was very smart he was almost he was almost candid because he loved to send messages through the media. I remember one time he was talking about how Magic wasn't playing very well, and I kind of wrote that, and that got Magic pissed off. And you know, so I kind of had that relationship with him going back to the '80s, and it was glad that you know you're talking 30 years later. I was glad to see that Riley kind of resurface, the guy that kind of opened up a little bit. And as I said, I'm not taking credit for it. It was more that Pat had subject matter that he really wanted to talk about and that this team was very meaningful to him and that Jerry West was very meaningful to him also. Yeah, and you know, one thing I wanted to mention too that stuck out to me was just some of the on-the-record quotes that you unearthed from years ago. I think it was someone talking about Wilt saying like, yeah, you know, you, I'm paraphrasing here, but Wilt used to be pretty selfish, but now he's like really playing team ball and like, and they're playing a lot better. And you don't really, and Phil Jackson would like play all these mind games with his players through the media. Other than maybe Pop, it doesn't seem seem like any coaches do that anymore but was it was there a time when all coaches were just kind of frank about this you asked them about anything and they would just give you their real opinions a little bit you know i mean the guys that i started with were, were kind of like that they were they weren't i mean coaches got fired don't get me wrong but yeah. you know you'd go see jerry sloan i mean jerry sloan had what kind of amounted to a semi lifetime contract <laughs> Phil yeah. got very certainly comfortable in Chicago. Riley was very comfortable in Los Angeles. They didn't make the money that they did, and but yet their job security was maybe a little bit better. But the other component of that, of course, obviously, was there wasn't social media. I mean, it, it took these guys a while to realize, holy crap, whatever I say, <laughs> the next day is multiplied by a million times. And so therefore, everybody's a little quieter. You know, everybody he's just a little bit uh, more guarded. And I really found this out when I when I went back to do the Dream Team book. This is only 1992. Sure. All those guys still fresh in our imagination. We still know Charles. We still know Michael. We still know Magic. We still know Larry. But the written record of those guys, fortunately for me, trying to do a book was so much less than what you would think. You know, can you imagine how many tweets there would have been about Charles Barkley goes out in Barcelona on a night in the Rambles? <laughs> I mean, it's... There 
there'd be video of it. Yeah, I mean, it it would have blown up. And yet, you know, back then, it was kind of like I was only writing one story a week for Sports Illustrated. You know, there was nothing in between. So I think that's also happened to sports that anybody with a brain has realized that you better be a little more guarded with what you say. And for unfortunately, that, you know, that doesn't help our job because we always want people to say interesting things. But if you work at it, you can still find them. You can still work at it and still get some uh, still get some interesting things. So I want to ask you about Jerry West's game, the central figure in this book. But for those many of my listeners are in the younger demographic. I personally am in the younger demographic. I'm 37. What was Jerry West's game like? He's a guy, you know, consensus top 15 player of all time. Like what made him so hard to stop? Well, he was very, he came in the league in 1960. Uh, it was sort of a, almost a bird and magic thing. Well, actually, bird and magic were drafted in different years, but Oscar and Jerry uh, came into the league together. And the consensus number one player was Oscar. Oscar was yeah. the number one pick here, was the number two pick. They had co captained the Olympic team, and much as Magic and Larry had played this transcendent NCAA final game. So people knew about him, but Jerry was pretty much looked at as the, you know, the second wheel on that. Still a very good second wheel. He was very much, he and Oscar were both very physical players for their time. Believe it or not, they were known more as forwards. I mean, Jerry yeah. was third in the nation in rebounding when he was a, a, a junior or senior. I can't remember. And But, you know, st- still everybody knew they were going to transfer to be guards. So the first thing about him was he was very physical. He was uh, he was six foot three, six three and a half, raw bone, strong, very athletic, tough. Oscar was kind of the same way. And Jerry didn't have a game with a lot of, you know, didn't have a lot of pizzazz into it. He was very, uh, very fundamental, really, really, really great shooter at a time when shooting wasn't really that good. I mean, the old people, you know, never let an old somebody my age tell you how much better it is. Because we will, people my age will do it. I won't do it because I've been around the game. But people will tell you, oh my God, the skill level back then was so much better. No, Jerry West was one of the first really great great shooter. And the final thing about his game, and I found this very interesting, I came across this video clip that these guys had put together a compendium of West's game. They could literally find no clip of Jerry coming off a screen, uh, you know, catch and shoot. He was the, you think of Steve Kerr, yeah. Jerry West was the complete opposite. Jerry West came down, dribble, dribble, dribble. Jeff Petrie told me, described it as a crab dribble. Dribble, 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 maybe use a screen, maybe not, maybe cross crossover, you know, but just bull his way, finesse his way into a position to get off his jump shot. He didn't even really post up very much. I mean, you know, he didn't go down on the block and overpower guard. He shot that jump shot or he got to the hoop and he just had a nose for scoring. I mean, he was a great passer too, but, you know, he had a will to score and that was kind of his, uh, that was kind of his game. Yeah, I thought the passage you had about how he would just drive hard usually to his right and then use that last dribble and pound it so hard that the ball was popping off the floor almost so much that it like helped him jump as he would catch it and just you know because he he was quick and then he could just stop on a dime and rise over guys you know it seemed like that's how he would get most of his points well, I, you know, honestly, I'm I'm not making this up in the 60s. So I was in uh, high school, let me see, when Jerry, yeah, I was in high school when Jerry was kind of the, the height of his career in the mid-60s. And I remember my father telling me, now watch what he does here. He takes that, I later told Jerry West that, and Jerry West calmly doesn't even look up from his Los Angeles Times and goes, yeah, a lot of guys told me that. You know, this story of... <laughs> 
And this story of getting yourself into position and taking that final stab dribble. And when I asked Jerry about it, uh, you know, once in a while you get these quotes that you, you think you're going to ask somebody something and it turns out to be nothing. And sometimes it turns out to be better. This was one of those cases because Jerry actually told me, as you alluded to, he had a scar on his face for the longest time because he used to snap that dribble up so hard and into his face. And I talked to uh, Steph Curry's shooting guru, uh, Bruce Fraser, who's an assistant with the Warriors, talked to him about it. And, you know, Steph is completely different today's players. Sure. They don't, they they stop and shoot on a dime. They're handling, they're handling, they're dribbling down low. All of a sudden, boop, rise up and, sh- and shoot. It's completely different. And that's a little bit why, of all the things Wes did with the Warriors, he never really, he, he didn't talk to Steph very much about his game. You know, he didn't, he didn't have anything to say to Steph Curry about shooting because Steph Curry's about as good at getting ahead of ourselves, but Steph Curry's about as good a shot as you can uh, ever get in the history of the game. The biggest thing that strikes me in terms of difference, obviously there's the three-point shot, there's more posting up, but just the advancement of dribbling moves, and, and you alluded to this, but I think in some ways... And, and yeah dribbling is much better now it's much more advanced but my dad would tell me this obviously that like you know you got to keep your hand on top of the ball and just like go up and down you know you can't like he would say that all of the moves today are carrying do you remember like when it was that it, though you could really start doing moves like that and not actually get called for a violation i think it probably yeah i remember that very clearly i mean you know i also remember my father talking about that one of the things that happened strangely was balls got better i mean i i played in an era not not at any level sure. but high school in one year of small college basketball when basketballs were different you know you you couldn't handle them as well so as is the case with golf, not as not as evident, but equipment got better. I think it had a lot to do with, I think it was maybe that magic era. I think magic kind of, the only way I used to describe it is kind of gambled along, you know, had that loping dribble. And I think that was part of it. I'm not saying magic carried, but I think that he sort of started getting away with things that people didn't. The ball went into the post, and I remember really noticing it in the mid-80s with Patrick Ewing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those centers, you, you threw the ball in, and then there would be that moment of hesitation, particularly Patrick, Akeem, Lajuan. They would take that bump, dribble, bump, dribble, and it was almost always a palm. And I think that the term palming has almost gone out of the game. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, they almost don't call that anymore. Having said that, the ball control abilities, and one of the things that Wes said to me and admitted that had I been playing day, that is one of the things I would have had to get better at. That Jerry basically got by with this kind of bull-like dribble. I mean, I can't even, in my mind's eye, I can't. Even, I don't even remember Jerry crossing over. You yeah. know, or, or I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did, but I can't remember him going behind his back. I don't remember him crossing over. He just forced himself into a spot. Sometimes he used the screen. Sometimes he didn't. And he got off his jump shot, or he got by you. And he got into the lane, and he made a shot. He didn't even really shoot left-handed very much. I mean, he was kind of a right-handed player. He just had this will to score do you think that the refs like made a conscious decision like hey we're not going to call palming anymore or was it just like you know players just got by it and refs were like hey you know what? i guess like they're trying this and it's technically legal so we're gonna let it go i mean i, I remember you wrote, i think it was you i would have had to have been you probably because it was in like the 1990 like si preview it uh maybe it wasn't but it, I, I i was a 10 year old but i still remember everything with perfect clarity that happened when i was a 15 year old and earlier uh, it had like Bill sure, Lampier yeah. on the cover. Uh, oh yeah, it was. Where do, uh, do you start thinking you remember stuff? That's. <laughs> 
that that time is coming soon but and if it wasn't you i apologize but it was an article earl strom saying basically like hey you know what like we kind of let stuff go when it's really awesome right like if if you're up by 15 and mj travels a little bit and does a great dunk like we'll kind of let that go um so do you think it was a conscious thing or was it just you know hey these hey we didn't realize that these moves are legal we gotta let them do it the ref i think the referees and the good ones uh kind of refereed i think earl told me one that was some story i remember doing and i was very close to earl and there was all these colorful referees back then you know a little bit more uh you know jack madden and and earl strum and uh and these type of guys uh mike mathis they were very more colorful they always refereed the flow of the game they didn't ref they would have never wanted to tell the supervisor referees this but they refereed the flow they didn't referee the rules they refereed the flow and i think palming along with maybe the extra half step or the extra step when you're alone which still drives you know 75 year old men he's walking you know (laughs) i think that finally the prevalence of it just sort of wore everybody down and they realized well okay it's going to disturb purists but it's in the game now kind of like the phantom force out at second base in baseball yeah it's it's just something that's so ingrained to the game the latest well i don't know whether it's the latest thing i'm not going to say that but you know the the two-step manu maneuver you know yeah the the euro step yeah the euro step all of a sudden man is on this side of the lane well then he's on that side of the lane i mean i never did know whether the rules the rules as i understood it always legislated the way we were taught yeah you can take two steps when you pick the ball up but they have to sort of be consecutive you know yeah. you can't look like you're out on a stroll and i think manu has pretty much you know europeanized that that call is kind of okay now and look that's just something you have to accept about the game i i do know that it drives uh some people crazy but i think there's those little things in every sport. I, I really do. Basketball, because of the visual impact of it, because you see everything that's going on, uh, probably gets a little more attention with these subtle rule uh, things that happen over time. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get too in the weeds here on referees, because, but I note, of course, like when I'm live tweeting a game and I make some comment about the refereeing, that's always like what gets like most responses and most retweeted. People, for whatever reason, are like a, a obsessed about that. Um, you know, so another thing I want to talk to you about is Jerry West's divorce from Golden State. You had a lot of stuff in there about that. You know, obviously they, they brought him in, they really valued him, and he had a great effect. And then from basically what you said and i'm paraphrasing you can correct me if i don't have it perfectly correct in my head but that they wanted to cut his salary he was making you know maybe two million and they wanted to drop that to maybe one million and was that just like do you think that's the only reason he left was it just money was it joe lakeup saying hey you know what i want to save a million bucks and jerry saying like no i helped build this like one of the greatest teams of all time like what are you cutting my salary for well six about six weeks before the playoffs began when i was doing one of my interviews with jerry all of a sudden he he mentioned this he mentioned it to me off the record that they uh, i was stunned i mean i was like you know i you don't want to show your how stunned you are because you want to keep sure. asking follow-up questions and jerry told me that he was thinking about leaving and they were they were trying well not they were trying that they were going to they wanted him to stay but they were going they wanted him to stay at a reduced rate and I'm, I'm thinking to myself my god you know i have to follow up on this thing and you know i sort of tried to get jerry to go on the record and he kind of wouldn't wouldn't do it and uh when we got to the finals the final game everybody else was in the locker room and i was trying to find jerry simply because i was you know working on this book 
And, you know, Jerry at that point finalized the fact that he was leaving. And I called him a couple days later and I said, uh, Jerry, look, you know, I've been following you around. I've been interviewing you. I I'm going to break this story that you are leaving. I know you told me this stuff you know, off the record about the salary. And I'm not going to bring that up, but I'm going to tell, you know, the world that you're leaving. And he talked to me and he confirmed that he did. But when it was time to finish the book, uh, you know, I really needed to, to clamp down on this story that they had cut his salary. And I was able to get it from a third person because Gary didn't want to tell me directly. And the Golden State Warriors certainly didn't want to. In a <laughs> nutshell, in a nutshell, you know, the Warriors, the Warriors position is that, look, we, you know, when we got Jerry, we really needed him. But he was always a part-time consultant. You know, he wasn't up. He's not in every meeting. He was part-time. Bob Myers has become the best GM in the league. Steve Kerr has become the best coach. Steve Curry and Kevin Durant have become, you know, arguably the best one-two punch. We have our players signed through 2019. We are rolling. We are set. And as, as a bottom line item, we don't need you as a consultant to the extent we did before. And we're going to, we want you to stay because you've been with us, but you're not a full-time guy. And so there is a capitalistic argument to do sure. what Joe Lake did. You could make that argument. Do you However, do you agree with that argument? What do you think of it? I do not agree with the argument simply because I just think, for me, it's, it's just such a public relations disaster. I mean, they obviously didn't want it to get out. I'm sure they're obviously not very happy that I, that I wrote it, and uh, they would rather not have it get out. But I mean, you're talking about a franchise that was purchased for $450 million and is now conservatively worth, you know, $4 billion when they move into the new, uh, you know, Chase Center. So I just think, you know, you could make the argument, but it was a bottom line decision that, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't have done. But I will say this, do they need Jerry now as much as they needed his prestige, his leadership, his evaluation, uh, you know, talent? Do they need them as much now as they did six years ago? Honestly, I would have to answer that question, no. And that would be their argument as to why they could cut the salary. Yeah, it's tough because if you're going to compensate people based on how good of a job they did, well, I gotta say you did a pretty damn good job. Uh, but, you know, you could still say, hey, you know what, we don't necessarily need you as much anymore either. Uh, so Steve Kerr is someone who, you know, you talked with him extensively. You talked about how he, he kind of has this understanding of the serendipity of his career. Uh would you say he's like among the most emotionally intelligent people you you've covered and I'm, I'm kind of setting you up for that so i apologize that's a bad question but uh <laughs> assuming you agree with that who else is on that list that you think of as someone who's just really gets it emotionally in, in the sports world uh well that is a phrase i think of with steve because i you know i think i probably said it before that that's what i that's what i think of when i think of somebody i'm not sure there is somebody like i, I steve's great gift i think that i haven't seen from other, you know, and I've been around some great coaches, been around uh, Phil Jackson, you know, been around Pop, uh, Mike D'Antoni, certainly very, very close to him. Steve is somehow able to communicate all of the coaching cliches, and I'm, I'm using cliches in a kind of quote marks around it, all the things sure. that need to be communicated. We have to be united. We have to play hard. We have to practice seriously. We have to be good guys. We have to dedicate ourselves to the craft. Steve is somehow better than anyone I've ever seen at communicating those cliches, yet at the same time coming across as a very human person, coming across as someone who, you know, is not standing
standing on a perch with a bullhorn and shouting those things down at you. And I don't, is it something you can learn? Uh, is it a gift? I mean, Steve will tell you that he learned a little bit from Phil. Uh, he learned, excuse me, he learned a lot from Phil and he learned a lot from Pop. But this kind of emotional stability that he has, uh, that comes from Steve Kerr. You know, that. Yeah, because those guys were kind of, those guys are kind of hard asses at times and you don't get that well, as much Phil from is, Steve. Phil is, Phil is much more aloof than Steve, ran his team completely different. Obviously, Pop is, uh, you know, comes across completely different. Pop is a little bit more of a different animal, by the way, when he's around his team. Sure. I mean, he comes across as the ultimate hard ass in, in public. In private, he's a little bit looser, but he's not Steve. And the best way, and I, I wrote in the book that the, one of the most interesting thing about Steve was that I could, I would be wanting to talk to him about Curry or Clay Thompson, and Steve would spend five minutes talking about the value of JaVale McGee, <laughs> the 12th guy in the team. And I, I would just go, Steve, I, I, you know, I really don't want to talk about <laughs> that, that's how Steve coached his team. I mean, he coached his team one through twelve better than anybody I ever seen. I've ever seen, and that kind of plugs into the whole Warriors thing. You know, top to bottom, we're a team. We find joy in playing. We're all together. This is a democracy, and you know, it's corny right now. Uh, it sounds corny, uh, and right now it's working because they're winning. It will be interesting to see. You know, it, this, everything is cyclical except the Boston. Celtics in the 60s. Almost everything is cyclical. So we're going to see how this hangs together, uh, you know, later on if things start to fall apart. Yeah, I really, I can't wait to see what would happen if he were on another team that didn't have as much talent. Obviously, he was the perfect coach for this team. I don't mean to get denigrated him. I think of him as, you know, a top two coach in the league pretty clearly in my eyes. But being on another team without as good a character guys, without this type of vets and talent, whether he could get through would would be fascinating as it would have been for Phil as well. We never really got the answer to that with phil no it's, um, yeah it's one of sports unanswerable questions that people always ask i mean and you know the, the first and most obvious thing is nobody nobody can win a championship without talent you can't you can't coach your way you know to a championship uh but now um you know i had put in the book that the warriors as, as much as we're talking about them and as great as they've been the last three years their immediate task is to win two championships in a row <laughs> you know, they still haven't done that. You know, they still haven't won two championships in a row. So before we cast the true mantle of greatness on them, obviously they're going to have to win uh, this season. G- going back to Steve for a minute, one of the interesting things for Steve, though, was, and maybe it seems evident now, he's got Steph Curry. He's got, you know, Draymond Green runs the floor. Clay can stop and shoot in transition. When Steve got there, Steve had actually played, you know, the Chicago Bulls were not really a running team, you know. They were a yeah. team that wanted to destroy you in the half court with uh, with Michael and Scotty and the Spurs. They were Spurs were never slow or deliberate, but they were certainly not a transition team. They had a dazzling kind of half court offense. So Steve came into a position where he could have. Every every coach wants to bring what he knows to it. And you know, Steve told me, you know, yeah, he wanted elements of the triangle. He wanted elements of what Pop did, and those are in the Warriors' offense. But you know, when when Steph Curry got turned loose it became very evident that uh this is the way we're going to play and it's not the way that steve kerr was brought up in the nba 
Yeah, that's a good point. I guess it really was. I know he wasn't a guy who was running the ball down teams' throats. Obviously, in his his playing career, and the Bulls were kind of more of a you know they would run off their defense, but they weren't like taking the ball out of the basket and trying to you know they didn't really have a traditional point guard who who would push it up or anything like that. So that's an interesting point. Uh, we've been going for so long here. Got to do a quick read, and we'll be right back with uh, Jack McCallum uh, after this. Fantasy basketball fans, if you love fantasy basketball, then you need to try my favorite fantasy basketball app, Draft. It's daily fantasy basketball, but it's different from traditional salary cap leaves. On draft, you play real live snake drafts with other people, just like in your season long league, but it's a draft that only lasts for one night and you don't have to manage your team and log in and check the waiver wire all the time. Just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. Draft even takes care of last minute injuries for you. Drafts start every couple of minutes, so you can join one right now. And the best part, you can play for cold hard cash. Drafts start from just $1, so there's a draft for everyone. The reason I think it's it's better than some of the big sites is in those traditional salary cap sites it's easy for professional players to enter in hundreds of contests every day and hundreds of lineups with draft it takes more time right it's not a ton of time two to three minutes if you're doing one or two or three drafts you can do it and it won't take a ton of your time but if you're one of these people who wants to do play in 150 games and try to make this your living then it takes too much time so with the snake draft format not all the profits are just going into the hands of professional players like people are worried about uh, on some of those other sites the way to get started with them is to use my promo code CAPSPACE, and that will let you get free entry into a draft when you make your first deposit so you could play a real money game for free use my promo code CAPSPACE. easy to remember because we talk about cap space all the time on the program and let them know that you came from us that's the draft app or playdraft.com promo code capspace so what do you think is the first year that and you know anything can happen in the playoffs anything could happen in terms of injuries but what do you think is the first year that the warriors will not be title favorites with this team <laughs> well i don't have their contracts in front of me but there's no yeah. you know it's funny when I mean, assuming they stay it. together assuming they stay together yeah you know you'd have to say after the 18 19 season I guess. I mean, that's when I think most of the key parts are are uh, signed until then. Uh, yeah, it's Clay and Draymond these, are free agents, or, or or Clay is a free agent at that point. Draymond, I think, has one more year after that. But yeah, Draymond has one more year after that. So I don't know. I guess you could argue then the following year. But um, when Jerry West went to his first press conference with the Clippers, uh, <laughs> with Doc Rivers standing next to him, one of the things he said was, "Well, I tell you what, the, you know, it's going to be very hard to beat the Warriors for the next two years." Well, that's not something <laughs> you want to hear from your uh, from your from your new team but look there's no reason to suspect i mean there's no reason you could pick anybody else on paper i'm very anxious to see how the uh the whole thing in oklahoma city uh works i mean that's still a a really strange kind of mishmash for me the cleveland cavaliers you know strangely look like a team just kind of holding together the season you know that that uh uh, derrick rose and and d wade as great as they as great as d wade was uh you know that well let's try can we eat one more year out of this yeah. so there doesn't seem to be to me and and the spurs are a year older we always have the addendum of don't forget about spurs a year older i can't i don't see how they could possibly get by you 
you know, Houston or Oklahoma City this year, but who the hell knows? They may find a way to do it. The Warriors are the clear favorite to me for the next two years, but as you said, uh, anything can happen, particularly with uh, with injuries. Yeah, maybe when KD and Steph, you know, are not quite as good as they are now, like maybe that's a that's when it happens. And uh, so I want to get back to the book real quick, though. I, I've kind of sorry I've been so disjointed, but we kind of go off on tangents, and the, I've been enjoying that. But uh, Elgin was ex- yeah. <laughs> uh uh elgin was an example of this but especially for guys who are kind of removed you know i don't know what there's kind of like this book statute of limitations where it's like okay now you can really talk about stuff but like especially guys who are retired you know like in, in elgin or even jerry pat riley like what is their motivation to talk to someone like you right like you know because normally today in the media you know you have media obligations you're trying to make endorsement money you want to like craft your brand in a certain way you know elgin baylor doesn't care about that anymore it's like when you go and talk to these guys like why do they even say yes to you to like be bothered and be in a book like this well i'm glad that they do uh elgin was elgin was an interesting case because i didn't think he would talk and you know i don't think he really i mean i didn't know him but he didn't talk to me because i covered him and i had some amount of guilt talking to him because uh you know anything that i wrote about the clippers and about his general managership in the 1980s was certainly negative and i never covered him as a player and always in my private time or in columns i would always write these things about my god he's the most under i always put he and stan musial in baseball in the all-time underrated under all-time underrated hall of fame but yet when it came time to write about elgin you know i probably was not very complimentary because he was so unsuccessful as a general manager. So I had some amount of guilt when he agreed to talk. I think one of the things uh, that you find, and I was lucky with this, I don't mean to reference another book, but I was I was lucky with this with Dream Team. And that is, you find a subject that really meant something to people. Yeah. That I was fortunate that, you know, the Dream Team, I mean, to get all those guys, trying to get those guys alone was very, very difficult. But I was able to do it because this was a special time in in their life. This was something that they remember. That was the case we already talked about, Pat Riley. That was the case with Pat. I think in a way, that was the case with Elgin. You know, he's kind of not remembered. Um, and then somebody came along and they wanted to talk about a time when he was remembered. And I think that was part of the motivation. And people people get honest. They get perspective when, uh, you know, when you, when you wait a while. I mean, the Dream Team book, I was going to write one during that season, during the 92 season. Somebody did write a, a, a book about the dream team my idea kind of fell apart and it was better to go after them 20 years later you know they've had they've had a resume they've had a life they've had a career they've had kids they've had divorces they've had you know new jobs they've had new challenges and a lot of time that's more interesting and i think in sports that really works you know some of the great sports books have been you know the boys of summer you know looking back because we knew them as one thing and you almost they're these mythical creatures and you almost forget 20 years later they have to be doing something else and they have to look at the world differently and that's why a lot of times uh some of these books are so uh so successful when they look back at athletes or they get athletes looking back at themselves you've interviewed so many of these great players now years later do you get the impression that most of them like 
are happy or is it difficult for them to really look back and say like hey you know what like whatever i'm going to do after this the pinnacle of my life was going to be when i was you know 28 years old and like nothing is ever going to quite catch up to that i mean do they seem like they're happy or is there a you know kind of a resignation knowing that maybe the best times of your life have gone by well i mean you know there's probably no uh you know hard and fast rule on it sure one of the things that one of the things that's interesting to me is that you know i don't know what we're we can consider uh old guys i mean i can't go back to yeah. actually one of the first guys i met on the beat was was bob Cousy, who always seemed very content to me he stayed close to his team tommy heinson another underrated player by the way take a look at yeah. tommy heinson's stat all we know him now is the kind of you know blubbering announcer of the boston <laughs> celtics who never committed a foul tommy heinson was a great really great player he played connect to the game so what i was getting at is the guys that what were around when i first started covering let's say like 1980 they somehow stayed connected to the game and i'm i'm, I'm fortunate because it's you're able i'm able to stay kind of relevant because look magic's still in the game until a year ago larry was still in the game michael was still in the game phil into a while ago phil jackson was was still in the game isaiah is around lambeer's coaching a, a women's team so I, I think I got into the era just when guys were okay, just when they were making enough money to be happy. You know, I didn't cover the guys in the, uh, the 60s who probably are the ones filing the lawsuits and trying to get the NBA Players Union to treat senior players better. But in general, over, let's say, the last... 40 years, the guys I covered uh, have done pretty well and are pretty content. And there's not, you know, an overwhelming number of sad stories, which makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And so I know we're running a little short on time here. So last question I want to ask you, I alluded to it early on, is just who do you think are some players from, you know, back in the era when you, you wrote this book or the 80s and 90s when you were covering the league that you think we just don't really talk about enough today that are kind of just underrated guys that have been lost uh, on the shores of history and maybe we should start talking about more uh, well, I guess I guess one of the guys that uh, that comes to mind is probably uh, Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah Thomas. I always had trouble, uh, you know, kind of getting along um, with Isaiah. He was a little bit prickly, and I think one of the things that I about him was that he could just never uh, break into this magic troika of Magic Michael, Larry, uh, and it really bugged him and really uh, worked at him a lot. But um, he is really, really, uh, uh, you know. A, a great player. I mean, somebody that, that, you know, at that size who really dominated the game. And I think perhaps he's been, uh, he's been a little forgotten. Um, I think also it, one of the It's funny because I, the uh, most advanced statistics would say that he's actually like massively historically overrated, but I, I take it you don't feel that way. You mean by shooting percentage and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and just, you know, I think like a lot of people would say that John Stockton, for example, you know, was a much better player player statistically than Isaiah was you know obviously and that Isaiah by that we kind of because he was the best player in those Pistons teams that maybe we overrate him and underrate like how good all the rest of those guys were and how good their defense was and that that was why they were winning 
more than it was Isaiah. That's the theory, at least. Yeah, well, I was close to, you know, kind of close to that team. And, you know, that, that team was really unusual uh, in, in winning a championship when I didn't think, beside Isaiah, I didn't think they, you know, did really have a, uh, a great team. And I just saw the will that he had on that team. Plus, he had these kind of superlative, uh, you know, he had that game with a sprained ankle, which goes yeah. down as one of the yeah. great, you know, seismic performances I, in history. I did a whole podcast on that game once, actually. Yeah, I mean, it was just <laughs> phenomenal. Maybe that, you know, really sticks in my mind. The, another guy uh, the, that I would mention, and I always feel bad because I can never find a way to exactly put him in the top uh, 50 was uh, was James Worthy because, you know, he was on the, the Showtime uh, Lakers teams and, you know, got so dominated by uh, Magic and Kareem. And boy, you look at James for uh, a few years there and uh, you know you really have somebody who was a, a very very impactful player a clutch player did things that uh, you know that, that small forwards uh, really you know really not many have done and I would certainly think of uh, think of those two guys this is a, another guy because I, I did this podcast on ESPN came out with a list of, of their top 100 players and so I did a podcast with some of the guys who were in, involved in that list this is someone that I really never saw play at all I think the only classic games you'll ever see with him because his teams weren't really in the playoffs during his prime you know will be when he was kind of washed up with milwaukee later in his career uh and what was like bob lanier like as a player i know this is just the stupidest nerdiest question that's totally off topic but you're the the best person i could think of to ask this because i i look back at him i just i you know i didn't really know that much about him and you know his, his teams didn't do as much but he was a guy who's a, a hall of famer yeah probably uh of somebody with a couple years senior of me bob ryan would be a good ass oh yeah because bob bob was actually covering i wasn't quite well actually i was covering the league i think bob lanier's last year but bob lanier's probably a good example number one um you know he fell into that era of he's a classic sort of player that would be on the edges for a couple of reasons number one He didn't play with a winning team. You know, he, he played with Detroit, uh, which could never, you know, got over the hump after he left many years. But, you know, he never played with a championship team. Number two, he was plagued with injuries, you know, that he had he had bad knees. And one of the things I got to and talk about in Golden Days was Jerry West kept returning to the theme of how different injuries were treated back then. And I mean, oh, oh yeah. God, some, of the things, some of the things that happened to Elgin Baylor and some of the things that happened to, uh, to Jerry they would be nothing today because they yeah. would have been taken care of with uh, yeah. well they didn't have ar- the arthroscopic surgery hadn't been invented yet any surgery at all they had to just like rip open your entire knee and that would destroy people right I mean that happened to uh, that happened to many people and uh, I think Lanier had knee injuries himself and number three he wasn't really uh, an exciting player that he was almost one of the last breed of that rock solid center that you're going to throw the ball into him and he's going to he's going to be able to distribute and things like that. But having said that, when I saw him, besides being known for having size 23 sneakers, that was a big thing you knew about Bob Lanier. He was also kind of hurt by that, by the way. I mean, it sort of became this novelty, you know, that, uh, oh, yeah, he's the guy with the big feet. Strangely, you know, if you compare him, let's say, to Shaq, he was a very agile player, you know, Lanier. He could go across the lane. He could face up. He was just a really, really, really classic center. If I'm not mistaken, the guy 
had about seven or eight years at the height of his career when he was like a 25-24 point guy and like 13-14 rebounds. I mean, so he was a Hall of Fame player, clearly, but the fact that that position, that classic center position, has kind of so gone out of vogue that beside Kareem and Shaq and Wilt, you know, I'm probably forgetting a couple others, we almost don't remember, you know, guys like Walt Bellamy, guys like Bob Lanier, guys like Nate Thurman, who played that really classic center position that was really an early part, a big early part of the uh, of the NBA. Yeah, I mean, most teams, I mean, even if you didn't have a star center, now it's like, all right, you may got maybe five or ten centers in the league who post up, and then everyone else just sets screens and rolls to the basket and finishes dump-offs and, and plays defense, whereas, you know, back in... 20, 30 years ago, you would have guys who, you know, even a kind of, you know, the 20th best center in the league, they'd throw the ball into the post and like let him try and post up and he'd score, you know, 14 points a game on post ups. Yeah, I, I think it, you know, I always go back to, and this is only 11 years ago, I guess. Uh, you know, if you recall, the draft was Greg Oden or Durant. And Greg Oden looked like more like a classic center. You know, he was athletic and he was strong, but, you know, he didn't run the floor. He played close to the basket. He got his stuff on rebounds and, you know, little stuff around the basket. And then you had Kevin Durant and teams still took, uh, you you know, the choice still was Greg Oden, which, by the way, I never agreed with. I mean, I always thought Kevin, I mean, I may have been wrong about a lot of things, but I I could not understand taking Greg Oden over Kevin Durant because I thought Kevin Durant was a generational player. Anyway, flash forward 11 years, somebody Greg Oden size, Joel Embiid, yeah, everybody wants wants him, but they want him because, you know, he's about the farthest thing you could ever imagine from like Bob Lanier. You know, he's completely different. He's facing up the basket. He's handling the ball on the uh, outside. Uh, He's also tweeting, you know, which I don't think Bob Lanier probably would have done. So you're you're talking about completely, a completely different look at the big man. They just don't look like they used to. And Bob Lanier was, was kind of cast in that, kind of cast in that role. But boy, he was a, he was a great player. All right. Well, I've got to approximately like 3% of the things I actually wanted to. I didn't even get a chance to. Well, you can go on if you want to. Well, I think write another book so I so I can have you on a, again because uh, I know you got to get going here. Um, but yeah, I mean whether it's it, Wilt, I mean there's so much great stuff in the book, some amazing Wilt stories, you know, just tons of great stuff from these more recent Warriors as well. And just I really liked it how you kind of wove this into the fabric of the NBA and, and found two stories to use Jerry West to tie it together. And and it really, I just I'm probably going to read it again pretty soon. So I, I really appreciate you coming on, Jack. The book is Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers Who Reinvented Basketball. Thanks again, Jack. Oh, thanks for having me, Nate. Had a good time. Fantasy basketball fans, listen up. It's not too late to join the highest rated fantasy football app to play fantasy basketball. It's called Draft. You can download the app anytime. Just search Draft in your app store and join a game in minutes or play right from your computer on Draft.com. For limited time only, all new players get a free entry into a draft when you make your first deposit, but you got to use that familiar promo code CAPSPACE. That also lets them know, of course, that you came from us. That's right. Play a real money game for free. Just use the promo code CAPSPACE on your first deposit the legends are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.